This is the University Seventh-day Adventist Church in the sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today. And may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our future sermon. Good morning, church. How is everybody doing this morning? Good, good. All right. So delighted to see all of you here, and as I was mentioned earlier, don't you think for a moment that this sanctuary is less than half occupied? I think it's more than half occupied, and only as you see few human bodies around, uh, be assured that this is not the only presence that we have here. Not only the Lord's promise when there, there are two or three gathering His name, He will be there, we got also angels. We got also angels. So, praise God for that. This morning, I'd like to continue um, our study that we started uh, last night. Um, last night, we had an interesting, blessed time, and I pray that uh, all of us who were here last night were blessed, and so we're going to continue from last night into today's presentation. We've been dealing with this idea of revelation, covenant, and gospel, and we're going to be focusing a little bit more into the three angels' messages, and that's going to be our central topic for today, and uh, which lies pretty well within this theme that we've been studying in our Sabbath school lesson, the great controversy between good and evil. That's, that's, that falls right in into that main theme that we've been reading and studying about. Now, in order to bring some of you up to speed, okay, uh, let me just do a quick two, three-minute refresh uh, from last night's uh, um, discussion. So last night we were talking about Revelation being a book that is so relevant for 21st century Christians, 2016 Christians. And we gave some reasons why this was the case. Number one, Revelation is a book that is opened. It can be understood. It can be read. And, that, and we derive that from the usage of John's word, Revelation, uh, to uncover, to disclose, okay, show us something that wasn't visible before. Then we talked about that this revelation, this disclosing is not coming or it's not belonging to you, but it is more about whom? It's about Jesus Christ, right? And then we, we show you some, some, some biblical examples in the very same book of Revelation, how Jesus is presented not only for who he is, but what he has done and will continue doing for all of us. And then we also continue giving the origin of this book. This book is the revelation about Jesus Christ. Who gave it to him? Who gave it to him? It was God, which was given by God. So it has a divine origin. And if it is coming from God, then we need to pay attention to, right? If we want to take God serious, then we got to pay attention to it. That's just as simple as that. And then, then the next thing that we read in verse 1, we were unpacking only one verse, and there is so much into it. Then it says in that verse 1 that, that God gave it to Jesus. Why? What was the purpose? There in verse 1. To do what? All right, to show. To show his servants. What sort of things? 
What is it that he wants to show? Okay, you got, you got the book open with me? Are you, are you with me in Revelation 1? 1, 1? Okay. All right. To show the things which must take place when? Soon. Shortly. So he's going to let his people know things that will be coming because we got an ultimate goal. Remember what was that goal? Spread the gospel. Why? What was the ultimate goal? Why? Why do we need to do that? What is Revelation 21 and 22 tell, talking to us about it? About, uh, talking, talking about? Okay, everlasting life. So, and that's going to be happening in a new heaven. And that's going to be happening in a new earth. And so that's the ultimate goal that you and I should be aiming for, right? And then the Lord's going to say, let me show you your route, okay? Because it's not going to be so pleasant at times. It's not going to be so easy at times. But be of courage. I will with you. I will be with you, okay? And so then we also read that this is a book that has a special blessing for us. There in verse 3, 1, 3. He who reads, those who listen, and those who keep the things written therein or in it, then we'll receive a special blessing. And then uh, what was also another key word that you find there in, ver in chapter 1, I think it's verse 5. He has washed us, or he has cleansed us with his blood. And we saw the relevance of blood stemming all the way from Genesis chapter 2, and then moving all along to the end of the Bible. So it is a book full of relevance for modern-day Christians, modern-day believers. There was one more element that I, that, I, that I didn't mention to you last night. Let me bring it up today so that we can move now into Revelation 14. And that you'll find it there in chapter 1 of Revelation. Chapter 1 of Revelation, and I believe it's verse Four, if I am not mistaken, let me just double check it for you. Um, yes, it is in verse 4. In verse 4, we read that this John, the, the writer of Revelation, he says that he wrote his revelation and he sent it where? For whom was this book intended? According to verse 4. Okay, so it was intended two or four, the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him. Now, why is this relevant for us as well? It is relevant because this book called Revelation was intended for real people, real people in history. And as you read Revelation, you're going to find that this real people is not only real people back in the first century A.D., but this is real people in the Middle Ages. It's real people in modern ages, and it's real people in the 21st century today. And so as we see that, we need to understand now, Revelation is not just a book. That is part of the Bible for whatever reason, maybe a coincidence or something, but it's a book that you and I need to take a little bit of time and read, pay attention, and learn from it. All right. So we got this relevance clear, right? Now, let's move into the central unit of Revelation. 
And that central unit of Revelation is composed of chapters 12, 13, and 14 of this book. Now, let me give you a little diagram so that you can picture yourself and then be able to now place the three angels' messages in the right perspective. Okay? So let me use this board right here. Is it visible for everybody in every corner? Awesome. Awesome. What do we have? What do we have in this central unit? So we mentioned it's made up of three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. All right? Is everybody able to see the numbers? Or do I need to write a little larger? We're good? All right. Awesome. Awesome. Just want to be sensitive to everybody's eyesight because uh, sometimes I even got my own issues, even, even thought I got some glasses. So let me know. All right? Let me know. All right. Awesome. What do we have in this structure? What do we have here? In chapter 12 of Revelation, we have five major events described. Okay? First of all, we have the birth of Jesus Christ. All right? We have a woman that is described as being pregnant and is getting ready to give birth, but she's being tormented as she's trying to give birth. Okay? So, referring, reference to the birth of Jesus Christ. Then, when this male son is born, then the dragon is threatened, is fearful, wants to devour that male son, but then the cross comes into perspective. Because Revelation 12, verse 11, talks to us that we are able to overcome the enemy by what? Or through what? His blood, okay? And the only place that this blood was spilled was where? On the cross. So that is a clear allusion to the cross of Calvary. Excellent. So now the next event now that we see is now Christ's ascension to heaven. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm spelling it. No, I wasn't spelled correctly. I am so sorry. Ascension and possibly here. You fill that out for me, please. I'm not sure sometimes about my spelling. Anyways, Christ ascension to heaven. And when Christ ascended up to heaven, now revelation talks to us about a battle. So we put those two together. There is a battle. And that goes between Michael and the dragon. The angels of Michael and the angels of the dragon. That's the next event. Then after that, we see that now the dragon lost his place, is cast out, and now he goes to make war against the woman. And then the time period is given, 1260 years. Then something happens, not able to destroy the woman, but then in the end, it infuriates again, and it goes off to make word. But this time, it's not going to make word against the woman. Please keep that in mind and notice it quite, quite clearly in Revelation 12, 17. It's furious, but it's not going off against the woman. It's going against the seed of the woman. 
There is something about this woman that doesn't seem to pose any threat to the dragon, but the ones that are posing the threat to the dragon is the seed of the woman. And now they are identified as the ones who observe or keep the commandments of God and also have the testimony of Jesus. Five main events in Revelation chapter 12. And when you look at those five events, you're going to notice one thing. The, verse, the first three events sees or shows the confrontation between Jesus and the dragon. And the interesting thing is that in the first confrontation, when he comes as a baby, as a defenseless baby here on earth, he attempted to destroy Jesus, but couldn't. And so at that moment, strike one, still, still alive. And then comes the second time. Jesus grows. He goes into his ministry. Christ goes into a cross. He dies on the cross. But that death is not a defeat against Jesus. That death was a real good, strong, low blow against the dragon. Strike two. Strike two. Is he done yet? No. If you remember your good baseball season, how many chances does a batter have before he's out? He's got three, right? So now the devil has wasted two. He's still got one more. One more chance. And that one more chance is presented in verses 7 all the way to 9 when you see this battle waging up in heaven between Michael and the dragon, the angels of Michael and dragon's angels, and who comes out victor? Who's victorious? The dragon? No. Jesus. And as a result, he's cast out. So strike three, you what? You're out of the game. You're out. So now, it is clear. The devil is a defeated foe right there. He has no chance against Jesus. Three times, three attempts, he's out. Now, since he has no more chances against the Lord, and he's even out of heaven finally, completely, then he goes off against whom? Now he is against Christ's people. Exactly. His righteous. His church. And so here's where the description of the Middle Ages persecution is coming in. How he is now attempting to bend his wrath on the church since he couldn't defeat the Savior. But then the Savior comes through one more time and the church is preserved and the devil is assessed another blow. Is it done? Revelation 12 says, it's got a, we, there is one more chance, one more opportunity. And that is presented in verse 17. That is the end time. And then at the end time, notice that now the devil is not directly engaged against the woman, per se, the church in general. Now he is more focused on whom? A specific group called remnant, called the seed of the woman. And then that specific remnant is identified, has some distinguishing characteristics 
Number one, has the commandments of God. And number two, it has what? It has the testimony of Jesus. And those characteristics are very, very particular, very, very significant. I tell you why. Because those are the very same two that have distinguished the church throughout history. And I'm not saying only Christian history. I'm also saying Old Testament history. Now, when you look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, the prophet says, and now he's talking about Old Testament Israel, Old Testament church, to the law and to the testimony. Says Isaiah, if they don't speak accordingly, then what? They have no light. So what distinguished Israel in Old Testament days? The law and the testimony. Is there any difference between Israel, Old Testament, and the church, New Testament? No. What distinguishes the church in the New Testament is? In the New Testament is the same thing. The law and the testimony. You see the connection? Is this clear? All right, so now you got that description in chapter 12. So automatically, from that verse 17, 12, 17, we learned the devil doesn't care whether you go to church or not. The devil doesn't care whether you believe in God or not. That is completely immaterial to him. What matters to him is whether you observe the law and have the testimony. That's what makes the big difference between believing or non-believing. Is that clear, church? Are we cool? All right. Now, let's go to chapter 13. Let's continue looking at this structured here. Because we're going to get into 14, which is our main theme for this weekend. Now, in chapter 13, this is what God is going to do to John and to you and to me. He's going to take this last portion right here, the last two events of chapter 12, and now he is going to amplify them. He's going to amplify those two. And then in verses 1 all the way to verse 10, he's going to talk about a power called sea beast. Talk about that power called sea beast. And this power will also persecute, just like the, the devil persecuted the church here and will persecute for the same amount of time. However, this time is called three and a half times. So we can see the connection. The 1260 is expounded on the first half of chapter 13. And then, now, this sea beast is identified. And so now many are pulling out from that deception of the sea beast. And the devil knows that. So now he prepares a second deception. And that comes verses 11 all the way to verse 18. Second half of this chapter. And in this second half, now he's going to talk about the same sea beast from up here. But he's going to add a new character. And that new character is a lamb-like beast. So now instead of having one, now he's bringing two systems into perspective. So 
When confusion is discovered on the first half, now confusion is incremented in the second half. Because when you only have one enemy and you identify that enemy, then you know where things are coming from. But when you now have more than one, then you're going to begin wondering who it is or who is it. Is it coming from here or is it coming from there? And so confusion augments. So far so good? This is chapter 13 for us. All right. So let's move to chapter 14 now. What do we have in chapter 14? First one-third of chapter 14 is dedicated to presenting God's redeemed called 144,000 and they are on Mount Zion. Those are verses 1 all the way to 5. First third of the chapter. But see, notice this. Because John first will tell you the end and then will explain to you how to arrive to that end. Is this clear? Are you following me, church? So far, are you all with me so far? Awesome, awesome, great. So now, how is it that those called 144,000 were able to make it to Mount Zion and now are standing on Mount Zion and they're singing and they're praising God? How is that possible? Here comes verses 6 all the way to verse 12. And in verses 6 all the way to 12, now we have events on earth that talks about a proclamation. Three angels' messages. Why did they make it? And they are now seen on Mount Zion? Because while on earth, they were proclaiming three messages. Maybe not as popular messages, but messages that needed to be heard by the world at the moment. That's the second third of chapter 14. The third, the last third, is now verses 13 all the way to the last. I don't know if it's 19 or 20. You check me on that. And it is, is it 20? All right. And then it's a reference to... Jesus' second coming. So, why are those 144,000 seen on Mount Zion? Only because while on earth, they proclaim three angelic messages, and as a result, Christ came for the second time, and they were now redeemed. And then they made it to heaven. Praise God. So that's now the structure of this central unit of the book of Revelation. Now let's focus a little bit more on this one here. The three angels' messages. And let's understand it. Because when you read the three angels' messages, verses 6 all the way to 12, if you're already familiar with the message, you might be able to see new elements stemming out of the passage. If you're not acquainted with the passage, and maybe even send you to do, to do some quite of a good thinking because those are not pleasant messages, especially the third one. It's quite a strong message. So we need to be ready, not only to listen, 
but also to understand. And at the same time, be willing to explain it to other people. So now, let's go into understanding these messages. Now, let's go to chapter 14 of Revelation. Chapter 14. And then, let's focus beginning on verse 6. Chapter 14, verse 6. What do we have in 14, verse 6? All right, let me read it. And I saw, and behold, I'm sorry, I'm reading verse 1. I guess I'm getting too excited. But anyways, that begins the same thing in verse 6. And I saw. All right, great. I wasn't too far off, huh? Good. Verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to be proclaimed, to be preached to all the inhabitants of the earth or who are over the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Let me pause right there. That is kind of a brief introduction to the three angels' messages. Because then after that brief introduction, you got the first angel message, which is verse 7. Then you got the second angel's message, which is verse 8. And then the last angel's message, which is 9, all the way to 12. Okay? So it's a little longer and a little stronger language. So let's, lo let's look at that introduction, which is significant. And you and I need to pay a little bit of attention. Now, here are a few things that you need to get from verse 6 right there. Okay? A few things. Number one, John saw another angel. But now, where was this angel? Where was this angel according to verse 6? Okay, it was flying, but it was flying in the midst of heaven. Now, think for a moment. Why it was seen flying in the midst of heaven? Why wasn't it seen flying close to earth? Or somewhere between heaven and earth? Why was it in the midst of heaven? The only reason that I can see is, is that this is not an angel that is coming from the earth. This is an angel that is coming from heaven. Oh, well, what's new? I'll tell you what's new. And why, that, that, why this make a difference? Because if you go back to chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, who was cast out of heaven? Who was cast out of heaven? It was the devil and who else? And his angels. And they were cast out of heaven. And where did they direct themselves to? The earth. All right, so, he came, so they came to earth. So now, if they were cast out of heaven, could there be any angel hiding somewhere in a closet left in heaven. Now, therefore, when you see this angel flying in the midst of heaven, then automatically you know it's not an evil angel because all of them were cast out of heaven. Are you following? So this is a heavenly good angel. And if it is then a heavenly good angel, then that tells you that the message is coming directly from heaven to you and to me. Now, do we want to listen? I hope so. At least I want to. Because it's coming from right there. It's not coming from a different source. But now, here's the thing. What is the content of this angel's message? Right there in verse 6. Right there in verse 6. It tells you that this angel is coming to proclaim what else? What thing? Okay, he's got 
the everlasting gospel that needs to be proclaimed where? Orlando only? Florida only? No, it's got to be where? Worldwide, right? It's got to go worldwide. So this is a message that, it, that pertains to all of us, so it's got to be relevant to us. Now, here's the thing. Let me ask you, what is the everlasting gospel? Think for a moment. Don't give me a quick answer. Think for a moment. What is the everlasting gospel? Okay? Because we can always give quick answers. But now, let us understand what is this everlasting gospel. So that we can understand why this angel has to make a special trip to come to us and talk to us about it. What is everlasting gospel? All right, great. Let us break it. Let us break it apart. If you take the word everlasting, and then you take your concordance, and you trace it throughout the Bible, then you know you're going to find it pretty many times, right? Everlasting. Actually, actually, let me tell you this. Each time you read the word everlasting, or the word ever, or the word eternal, or the word eternity, and any other synonym that you may find encompassed with the same idea, it's all a translation from the very same Greek word or the very same Hebrew word. It's just that in English, we have so many different ways to call it that instead of using the same one all the time and turn the Bible a little bit boring, we use some synonyms in order to make it a little bit more pleasant to read. So sometimes we call it everlasting, sometimes we call it ever, sometimes we call it eternal, but it's still the same word. So don't let anybody tell you, oh, here it says everlasting, oh, here it says eternal, so it's two different things. Don't let nobody pull that on you, because it's the same Greek and Hebrew term, okay? Now, you take that throughout the Bible, you're going to find it many, many times. Now, take your concordance again, and take the word gospel, do the same job, trace it, and you're going to find that also a good amount of times. So when you take the two words separate and you look for them throughout the Bible, you're going to find it many times. But now here's the key. Here's the key. Take the two together. Take the two together. Everlasting gospel as one phrase. Read your entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. How many times do you think you will find it? Only once. Check me out. In today's technology age, it's a lot easier and quicker to check it out. It's just from a fingertip, and then you can check it. Only once throughout the Bible, the two together. Now, I think that the use of that phrase is intentional and meaningful on the part of John. It's not a casual thing, okay? It's not John trying to be a little bit more polished with his Greek. No, it's intentional. I tell you why. I tell you why. The word everlasting or eternal, as you read it, normally in our 21st century mentality, usually refers to what? When we talk about eternal, what are we thinking? Okay, we're thinking into 
the future, right? Eternal with the Lord. And we always think in terms of the future. Here's one thing that our Greek brothers did not help us with. Because when they used the term eternal, they were normally pointing forward, pointing forward. But the Hebrew mentality doesn't work that way. Eternal within the, the Hebrew mentality does not only point forward, the Hebrew mentality begins in the past, and from the eternal past, it moves forward to the eternal future. It goes crazy, right? It sounds crazy. That's how they think. So everlasting is a concept that encompasses eternity in the beginning that we cannot explain because we were not there, and then it moves forward to eternity in the future. And so what this word is trying to tell me is that what we need to proclaim is the very same gospel that started in Genesis and will continue for eternity. Are you following what I'm saying? This is crucial. This is crucial, church. Why is that crucial? Because nowadays, you're going to find a good number of, of dear, earnest, believing Christians telling you that in the Old Testament, God had one method of salvation, one type of gospel. In the New Testament, God now has a different type of gospel, a different type of salvation. But John is saying, that's not right. John is saying, it's been always the same. From eternity past to eternity future. God has not changed his methodology. Now, let me add one more element. Let me add one more element. So that we can get the picture a little bit more clear, more crispy. Those who claim that in the Old Testament, God employed one method of salvation, tell us that in the Old Testament, salvation was mainly by works, through law. And unless you complied, you were dead meat. And they cite some examples of that. But then in the New Testament, with the advent of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, now God's method of salvation has switched. And it's no longer based on works and law, but now it is based on what? Grace and what? And love, grace. So it's all about his blood. And as a result, what is it that most Christians are preaching today? That's all that they're preaching today. But now, John is coming back and he's saying, uh-uh, God has never had two methods of salvation. Because then that's, that's helping us see or giving us the impression that God could not get things right in the, in the, in the Old Testament. So somehow, he had to switch and implement a new method. As if God were not capable of saving people one way. But John is saying... God is very capable. And his method has always been good. Now, what is God's method of salvation from the beginning and continues to be until the end? What is God's method of salvation? Can we tell? Those of you who were here last night, what is God's method of salvation? What was it in the Garden of Eden at the beginning? What is it that he did in order to prevent Adam's death after sin? Okay, so it's all based on what? 
It's all based on the blood of the Lamb. And it's all out of grace because Adam deserved to die. He failed the test. And God decided, I'll take responsibility. The first time is at me. Now, second time will be on you. Okay? So now God decided, I'll die. It is my blood. And that is only out of what? That is only out of grace. And you can only accept it by faith. You move throughout the Old Testament, that's the way God has worked. You come into a New Testament, anything different? It's all the same. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, It is not by works of the law, but it is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's only one method of salvation. Don't let people tell you otherwise. So far so good? All right, awesome. So now, coming back again to verse 6, one more element that I'd like you to see here in, in verse 6 is that now this everlasting gospel that is proclaimed, that is to be proclaimed, goes not to just one specific group of individuals, but is supposed to be going to the entire inhabited earth. So as to every nation, every tribe, every kindred, and every tongue, or every people. So it is a worldwide message. Now, here's the content of this message. Because we got the general idea now, okay? And so we know gospel is about blood and grace. Praise the Lord. But then, there is also an implication. Because I cannot simply sit and receive everything on a silver platter thinking that I have nothing to do in this whole process. So here's where the first angel's message comes in. Verse 7. Verse 7. Let me introduce you to the first angel's message, and then we'll expound on it in our second service. Which, by the way, Pastor, what time am I supposed to finish this part? Am I already past my time? No? 20 more minutes? Oh, sweet. Good, good. All right, so let's unpack a little bit this first angel's message. All right, so far so good. Any questions? Is everybody understanding what I'm saying? All right, good. So let's go to verse 7. Let's go to verse 7 here. In verse 7, now the everlasting gospel, or this angel that has the everlasting gospel, is now saying in a great or loud voice, Fear God. Give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, or actually came. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the, and the fountains of waters. All right. So let's look into verse 7. A few elements that we need to have or we need to consider on verse 7. Okay, let me erase here quickly, and we'll look at those elements. I'm sorry? Oh, got 15? All right. No problem. No problem. Three main verbs. Three main verbs appear in that verse 7 that we need to be interested in because those three verbs will help us understand the first message. First verb, 
is to fear. That's the first verb that you see there. Second verb, give glory. Or if you want to put it in one word, glorify him. Third verb, worship. Worship. All right. So now let's look at those three individually, separately, and let us understand the message. The angel began saying in a loud voice, Fear God. Give him glory and worship. By the way, by the way, when you look at those three verbs, and I think the translation help us see John's tenor, the three verbs are given to us in imperative format, which tells us not an option. Must be done. We got to do it. Got to fear God. We have to give glory to him. We have to worship him. All right. Let's look at the first one. What does it mean to fear God? That's been an issue for individuals because people sometimes confuse the term fear with the idea of being afraid. Yes. Yes. Is standing in awe before an awesome God. Let us go a little further. And now let me help you use a tool that you can now implement in your understanding or your reading of Revelation. When you read Revelation, don't just go into the Revelation book or any book of the Bible for that matter. And just try to read and make sense in your mind. That methodology may fail you after a while. Because when you're doing that, trying to read and make sense out of it, indirectly or even unconsciously, you are reading your Bible or you are reading into your Bible you already preconceived ideas. And that is very easy to do, very difficult to avoid. I tell you that. And, and I, I've gone through that myself. Okay? I've gone through that. So don't try to read the Bible only trying to make some sense out of it because it may not work. It may not work. Let me give you an example. That is, I'm sure you're going to say, oh, Pastor, you're going to come up with that now? Okay. John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, there was this wedding at Cana. Jesus and his disciples were invited. Everything is going well. Nice party. Good celebration. But then they ran out of wine. And then Mary came to Jesus. They have no more wine. And then Jesus says, what to you and what to me? Woman, which is the literal translation. You may have a different rendering in your, in your Bibles. Okay? And then, in the end, Jesus says, all right. Have those jars be filled up with water, go and test, and good wine came up. So now, you're reading your Bible to make some sense out of it, right? And you're reading that Jesus provided wine for the wedding. So what is the natural sense for the individual? Jesus gave wine. So what's, what's, what's the sense now? What, what makes sense? What's wrong with drinking wine? And do you know that many Christians think like that? 
What's wrong with drinking wine? Why is that? Because for the 21st century mind, wine refers to what? Come on now. You're not gonna you're gonna you're not gonna buy you're not gonna buy orange juice under the name wine. It's just gonna say orange juice. But then when people think of wine, where do they go? They normally go to the liquor section and they get the alcoholic wine or drink. Because that's for, my, for 21st century mentality, that's what it is. And so it all makes sense. Jesus gave wine. Wine means liquor. So it's okay for me to get, I mean, it's only 5% alcohol, so not, not a problem. As long as I don't get drunk, that's okay. That makes sense in the natural mind. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So this is why that's not the greatest methodology for you to read and understand the Bible. Okay? So now, let me give you one that could help you a little bit more. Could be a little bit better. Whenever you're reading your Bible, number one principle, and this is something that I teach my students in the classroom. When you're reading your Bible, here are two, three steps that you do well following if you want to get the most out of your reading. Number one step, very elemental, very simple. Remove your foot from the gas pedal. Do you understand what I'm saying? Stop speeding. If you continue speeding, all you're going to get is some Christmas lights turning on behind you and telling you, pull over. Okay? When you're reading your Bible, don't speed. What I mean is, don't read fast. If at all possible, even turn off your fan so that will not flip your pages quicker. Okay? You want to read your Bible slowly and insightfully. Mean, that means you're going to pay attention to every word. You're going to pay attention to every phrase. Because those words and those phrase, phrases are not just there as fill-ins. They are provided for a reason. Many of those words are the foundation for greater theological concepts. Like grace, for example. You had a whole doctrine just based on one word only. So on and so forth. Okay? So number one step, slow down. Read slowly. Read insightfully. Now, the difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible, and this is the second step, is found where the individual is not only sitting with his Bible, but is also having a notepad and a pen or pencil beside it. And that he is reading and he is finding some key words there. Now he's writing down. He's taking notes. That makes the difference between reading and studying. Because now you are entering into the mood of trying to understand exactly what is it that the author is trying to say. Because you don't want to tell the Bible what you think. You want to ask the Bible what the Bible thinks. What is it that Jesus wants you to know? Okay? So you write down your words. Step number three. What are you, do, what are you going to do with those words? Those names or places, whatever they are. What are you going to do with them? Okay. Yeah, that's good. But what else? What? Okay. Here's gonna, you're going to take a good ally in your study of the Bible. 
And that good allied is called concordance. In our English language, we got two good ones. We got a Strong's concordance, and we have Yang's concordance. If you ask me which one is better, my answer to you is, how do you feel today? Do you feel strong? Go to Strong's. Do you feel young? Go to Yang's. They're just as equally good, okay? That's your best ally in your study of the Bible. Because now what are you gonna do with the word? Now you're gonna find out meaning of the word. And the meaning of the word is not simply obtained from a dictionary. A dictionary will give you a lexicon meaning, but that's about it. That's how it goes. That's as far as it goes. And you don't want to stop at a lexicon meaning. Because as you very well know, in the English language, our words have lexicon meaning, but then also how you use them will determine the meaning. Am I right? I'll give you just a quick example. Take the word hot. H-O-T. Take the word hot. What is the lexicon meaning of it? If you take a dictionary. Something that is warm, right? Something that heats up, right? That's the lexicon meaning. Now, is that all that you're trying to say with the word hot? No. Because now, a young person sees a nice young lady walking by the street. What is he going to say? She's hot. Now, is she showing some smoke? No. What is he trying to say? She's cute, right? So now the term hot derives a new meaning. But how about if you are the type of individual who likes to sweat while eating? And so you go and you sit, and your wonderful spouse will be serving you a nice, good dinner, and then adds a little spicy stuff into it, and then you begin eating, and you're crying, and you got, you're having some runny nose, and you're sweating, but you're still blessing your spouse. And how do we call that kind of food? Hot. So right there, you're going to see that the term hot has different meanings, depending on the context, how it is used. Same thing with the Bible. Same thing with the Bible. Okay? Don't just stop at a dictionary translation. Go beyond it and now look for the usage. Is this clear? Now, let me, let me use the term. Does it make sense? <laughs> okay, good, good. All right, so do I have like two minutes? I think it is, or I'm up? Two minutes, all right, great. Let's go back, and let's treat the word fear for just a moment. We'll pick it up when we return, after some messages. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, let's take the word fear, or the verb fear, to fear. What do we do now? We're we, we, we're studying the Bible because we got the Bible and we got a board, okay? So we're writing down things, all right? Now we're paying attention to keywords, so we're putting down those keywords. So what do we do now? The next step, what do we do? We take a good ally, concordance, and now we're going to check into the usage of the term fear. And of course, the concordance will give you a good list of usages. Different texts. Then, let me suggest maybe two or three, and we'll come back. If you go to 
chapter 9 of Proverbs, Solomon will tell you, and I'm not sure about the verse. I'm, it could be verse 10 or verse 11 in that neighborhood. Check me out. Um, Solomon says, the fear, I mean, the beginning of, the, of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And then he adds a little explanation, and he says that this, that this fear is separation from evil. But doesn't tell us much other than you are a wise person if you fear God, and you fear God because you separate from evil. You don't do the wrong stuff. But then when you tell people, don't, don't do the wrong stuff, you're still leaving question marks. Why? 9-7? Okay, thank you. Oh, 1-7 is one of the cons. Okay, but then it's verse 10? It's, it's, okay, great. Now you, you're using now your concordances. You're beginning to make some connections. Good, good. All right. So then what is separation from evil? Because what could be bad for someone, it may not be, for the, it may not be bad for the other. So we got to be a little bit more specific, right? So then Proverbs 8. And on that one, check me out too. Don't remember exactly the, the verse. But then Solomon also tells us about the fear of the Lord. And then in, the, and then in chapter 8, Solomon says that the, that, the, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then what else does he say? What else does he say? Do not what? He says a couple more things there. Okay, we got it there on the screen. Okay, pride, arrogance, evil way. Fraudulent mouths. I hate those things. So now Solomon is a little bit more specific. Just don't separate from evil. Now he's giving you some more specifics. Don't lie. Be straightforward. Be truthful. Do what is right. Now, when you put all this together, now what is that reminding you of? If you don't want to have a fraudulent mouth, what is that telling you? There is a command that tells you, do not what? Oh, shall that bear false witness, right? So now automatically Solomon is beginning, beginning to connect the fear of God with what? The law of God, which he actually makes the connection. And that is found in the third reference. Ecclesiastes 12, I think it's 13, if I'm not mistaken, where he says, some of the matter is fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole of man so now you can clearly see a connection of God's fear with obedience to his principles so now you can see the fear of God is not to be afraid of God that is a misconception that has affected hundreds possibly thousands of individuals in different ages. Fear of God, it's an invitation to people to put their lives back in harmony with God's principles. Is this clear? When we come back, we're going to continue unpacking this first angel's message. And this afternoon, I'd like to invite all of you to come because now in the afternoon, we're going to deal with the second and third angel's message. And I pray that this will be a blessing to all of you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord continue guiding us in our 
study together here. And uh, thank you so much for your attention and your participation.